I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke 11. Looking at verses 14 through 26, title of the message, Insights into the Spiritual Battle. Insights into the Spiritual Battle. And before we begin this evening, I don't conventionally do this, but before we begin this evening, particularly due to the topic at hand, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Father, as we come and study your word this evening, I do pray that you would guide us through your spirit into this truth. Pray that it would be articulated in a manner that is clear and understandable. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take the word of God and would apply it to the hearts of God's people. I pray specifically uh, this evening that you would um, put a hedge of protection about us, that we might um, have clarity, that you would you would remove the distractions and confusion that might come uh, from the enemy, and that by your grace uh, this would be a time of great learning and of great understanding in the word, that it would make us better equipped through understanding the spiritual battle, to face that battle in the manner that you have called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come tonight to a very important point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, to this point, we have seen Jesus speak to different groups of people and speak about the distinct differences between those who believe and those who do not. Uh, by the way, as always, if you do need a Bible, if you don't have one and you would like one, there are some on that back table to my right and your left. Uh, and as we've seen Jesus teaching, we have noticed dividing lines begin to form, right? Between those that believe and between those that do not. At first, it seemed like everybody was on board. They were excited. But then as Jesus continued to teach, even continued to do miracles, we began to see these divisions where some people were no longer excited about his miracles, where Jesus would look at his disciples and say, whom do men say that I am? And whereas Jesus had been saying the whole time that he was the son of God, that he was Messiah, he asked the disciples, whom do men say that I am? And we find that men were not attributing to him being uh, divinity, not attributing to him being the son of God or being Messiah. They said, some think that you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others think that you're one of the prophets. And he says, but whom do you say that I am? Well, Peter pipes up, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And we, we begin to see this difference. Other people saw Jesus as just a good man. The disciples recognized Jesus to be the Christ, the son of God. That distinction kind of comes to a, a, a climax in Luke 11. We're going to see these lines be made more clear than ever. In many ways, the event we're going to read about tonight, and then as we continue looking at this this whole uh, circumstance next week, this is, if we can call it this, the final push into a point where now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, have completely rejected Jesus Christ as Israel's Messiah. Whereas before they were just kind of mumbling and saying, well, he's some other good man. At this point, they are going to attribute unto him the work of Satan. We've seen how Luke has been theming each chapter of scripture. We saw in chapter 9 a heavy emphasis upon Jesus' identity, what we just talked about. We saw in chapter 10 a heavy emphasis on perspective as it relates to life and ministry, having a proper perspective. In Luke 11, of course, the last two weeks we were studying prayer. And we were digging into an understanding of prayer. And we'll continue with the rest of the chapter with some of the most confrontational considerations of the nature of faith and belief in the Gospels. 
And as a part of these considerations, we find an interaction between Jesus and many of the scribes and Pharisees in relation to the spirit realm. We do not know much in the scriptures regarding the spirit realm. If you are a reader, you will perhaps uh, find many who believe they know a great deal about the spirit realm particularly those in in circles such as the New Apostolic Reformation where uh, they have uh, volumes of books written about the nature of the spirit realm and how to interact with it. But truth be told, much of what they teach is through experiential supposition. In other words, they're presupposing things and they're going off of experiences because the Bible simply does not say much about it. Several years ago, I preached a message directly on the spirit realm, and in it, I tried to bring together much of what we know or we think we know from the Bible. I'm not going to reiterate all of that this evening. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you want. It's on the website, as all of the messages are. But most of what we think we know is from example, such as when we see spirit beings interacting in the Bible. We see them interacting, we see a spirit interacting with a person, or spirit beings interacting with each other, and we can from that draw out some some truths about the spirit realm. Not directly from teaching, but learning from examples. Because we're only seeing the results of actions, not necessarily the, the spiritual happenings themselves. For example... Job tells us that Satan appeared before the throne of God to accuse Job. By this, we see that Satan has access to the throne of God. By this, we see that Satan is busy about the work of accusing God's followers. And that God gives Satan limited authority over the people on this earth. But while we see these things, while we see them by example, we're not actually taught them in the scriptures. There's no book that says, this is how Satan works, this is what Satan does, this is what Satan doesn't do, this is where he goes, this is how he goes. We don't see that, we just see examples in the scripture of Satan doing things, or of the spirit realm operating in some way, and then we see the results. We see in Daniel, Daniel praying for God to grant him knowledge. We see an angel eventually come. And that angel says that he was opposed by the prince of Persia for a time. Until Michael the archangel came and helped him. It's not direct teaching on the spirit realm. But it gives us an insight into what's happening in that realm. And that's really most of what we have in the scriptures. We have these examples, these these. Times where we see the spirit realm interacting with man and then we draw from that certain elements. So we talked about the prince of Persia in Daniel. By this we know that there was some demonic force that was given authority and responsibility over a region. And then as that the angel continued to speak, he said that the prince of Persia is losing power and the prince of Greece will gain power. By that we know that there was also a prince over the region of Greece. And so we can understand that these demonic forces have dividing lines. And from that we can infer that there's most likely a prince of the United States. That there's some demonic force that is responsible, is seeking to change world events as it relates to the United States and every other nation as well. We infer that the Bible doesn't teach that, right? And we need to understand that difference. We need to understand that line. We need to be careful when we get into these inferences and not build too much of a mountain 
based upon the molehill that we have of insight. So needless to say, when we see in the Bible direct teaching on the spirit realm, this should perk our ears, right? If there is direct teaching about some element of the spirit realm, because there's so little direct teaching, this ought to be important to us. And tonight we're going to consider one of those few teachings where Jesus says some direct things about the nature of the spirit realm. And we're going to gain insights into the spiritual battle which we face on a daily basis. And believe me, trust the scriptures. The battle we fight on a daily basis is a spiritual battle. Don't believe me. Trust the scriptures. Before we do that, however, I'd like to lay a biblical foundation for spiritual warfare. And this won't won't be too in-depth. It's just going to lay a basic biblical foundation on a few points in regard to spiritual warfare. Point number one, as we lay this foundation. Point number one, Satan seeks our utter destruction. Satan seeks our utter destruction. Now, we're not going to get into all of the teaching on who Satan is and all of that this evening. I've taught on it before. I will teach it. Uh, This message had gotten too long, so I couldn't give you as much as I want to give you on the topic. But Satan seeks our utter destruction. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Satan is not a passive foe. He is an active foe. He is not just sitting around hoping that you fall into sin. He and his minions are active in the desire that you would be led astray, that you would be led away from the truth, that you would fall into perdition, that you will end up in enmity against God. He's actively seeking to uh, destroy lives. He's actively seeking to make believers ineffective in ministry. He's actively trying to ensnare men in error and hide from them the truth. We need to be sober and vigilant because Satan is active. He's an active enemy. He's not a passive agent of evil. He's an active agent of evil. Point number one, Satan seeks our utter destruction. Number two, Satan is not omnipresent, but he is Ubiquitous. Second Corinthians four verses three and four. I'll explain it. Second Corinthians four verses three and four say this. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So Satan is a created being. We know that, right? The Bible tells us that God created all that is. We know that Satan was at one time an angel of light. He was the anointed cherub. He is a created being. What that means is that he is not God. He cannot be everywhere simultaneously. He is not omnipresent. That's what that means. Everywhere at one time. He's not omnipresent. But what he is, is ubiquitous. That word ubiquitous means that you can see him everywhere. His fingerprints are everywhere. He is the God of a godless world, right? The Bible says in 1 John, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of God, but is of the world. Everywhere where God is rejected, the philosophies and ideals of Satan exist. If it's not of God, then it is aligned with the enemy. It is aligned with the evil one. And so when we go out into the world, while Satan cannot be everywhere at once, he cannot know what's, he doesn't know what's in your heart. He can't get in there. He doesn't know what you're thinking. He can't get in there. But what he can do is put himself, his philosophy everywhere so that you'll have a a plethora of chances to follow it. 
These philosophies and influences, the scriptures tell us, have blinded the minds of them which believe not. This is where we see in John and and in Romans that the world is in darkness, blinded by their sin. The God of this world, Satan is not omnipresent, but he is ubiquitous. Point number three, Satan can come as an angel of light. Satan can come as an angel of light. Of light. Second Corinthians 11 verses 13 to 15 tells us this. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, he says, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. So Paul is teaching here on false teachers, on those who would uh, lead people astray from the truth of God. And what Paul says here is that the majority of false teachers are not going to advertise themselves as false teachers. Now, there is a church of Satan out there, and those people are out there doing satanic things, obviously. But the majority of people, Paul insinuates here, that are working the evil of Satan's philosophies are not coming up to you and saying, Hi, I I work for Satan. They're saying, I work for God. They are coming as ministers of righteousness representing themselves as ministers of righteousness, but their message is tainted with error that leads people away from the gospel, that leads people away from the truth. Whether it overcomplicates it, whether it confuses it, or whether it misdirects it, they are false teachers. Now, the reason why, as Paul is teaching this, he says this is no surprise, is because he says Satan comes as an angel of light. This is one of Satan's primary philosophies. This is one of the primary methods, his modus operandi, his MO, the way that he operates. He doesn't oftentimes just give you a whole truckload of error and say, you need to believe all this false stuff. He'll give you mostly truth with just enough error in it to lead you astray. And this is why we need to be so careful. This is why uh, we, we need to be careful about who we're listening to as a teacher. This is why we need to be careful about the ministries that we follow. Because Satan does not often come to you as a wolf. He most often comes to you as a wolf in sheep's clothing. He comes to you looking like the right thing, but with a tainted message that will corrupt you. However, their works still manifest their heart. Their ends will be according to their works, Paul says. We are called to assess not only the words of ministries, but the fruit of their ministry. If the fruit of a person's ministry is is the fruit of unrighteousness, if it bears no change from the world, if it bears the marks of the world, the flesh, and the devil, if it bears the marks of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, look, it's not of God. It's It, it can't be. Because that is not the marks of a fruit-bearing ministry. Anyone can represent themselves as the light, and no wonder, because Satan does so too. But, as Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. So we look for fruit. We listen to what they're saying, and we look for the fruit. Number four. 
First, Satan seeks our destruction. Second, Satan is not omnipresent, but he is ubiquitous. Third, Satan can come as an angel of light. Fourth, the Christian battle is a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. This is just before Paul teaches about the armor of God that we need to put on so that we can quench the fiery darts of the evil one. He says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The wrestling, the contention is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are not in a battle against physical foes. Our enemy as believers. Now, I'm not talking about as citizens of the United States. I'm not talking about partisan politics. I'm not talking about those things. As believers, your enemy... Is not the people nor the institutions who have blinded the eyes of, of the unbeliever, who are following the God of this world. Your enemy is not even the ideologies and philosophies which hold men in darkness and unbelief. Your enemy is the spiritual force or the forces behind those people, behind those institutions, behind those ideas. Satan uses them as tools weapons in his warfare but the warfare itself is waged on a spiritual plane by spiritual forces and what we see whether it be the evil and godless philosophies of the day in which we live or whether it be the deeply compromised spiritual teaching of false teachers or even the physical manifestations of spiritual oppression or or or, or demonic possession all of those things are, are the weapons and casualties of spiritual warfare. So we don't hate people. We don't hate institutions. You are not in a fight against that other guy. As a pastor, I'm not in a fight against the false teachers. I'm not even intrinsically in a fight against their ideologies. I'm in a fight against Satan and his minions who is using those people and those ideologies to lead men and women astray. Now that was very brief. But I believe a necessary foundation for what we're going to read about in our text this evening. Let's dig into it a little bit. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, you're there. Look beginning in verse 14. The Bible says, And he, that's Jesus, was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. Now our text begins with a little bit of background. Jesus uh, is ministering as he does. He's taught on prayer. He's ministering now and he casts out a devil. And the scriptures tell us that this devil had made the man dumb. That word uh, has been a little bit misappropriated in our language today, but dumb means you cannot speak. You're unable to speak. So this was a person who physically speaking, his vocal cords and everything was fine. He knew how to speak, but he was not able to speak and he was not able to speak because he was demonically possessed. 
And this demon was not allowing him to do so. Now, Jesus casting out a devil, this was not an unusual thing. We've seen him cast devils out of many persons in Luke. Uh, Legion, remember, in Luke chapter 8, Legion was cast out of the demoniac of Gadara. Prior to this event, that man, uh, the demoniac, had shown signs of what we would call today mental illness, right? He was self-harming. He was uh, living uh, apart from other people. He had gone mad. And yet, after Jesus cast out legion, he was sitting in his right mind and clothed, whereas before he'd been running around the tombs and and caves naked. We read in Luke 9 about a man whose son was possessed. And once again, this demonic force tore at him so that he foamed at the mouth. Uh, He would uh, perform self-harm on himself. He would throw himself down. And the disciples were unable to cast this one out. And Jesus casts out the demon. And the boy was restored, the scriptures tell us, to a normal state of mind. Now again, we've talked about the spirit realm. We've talked about demonic possession. We're not going to dig all into that this evening. Demonic possession is a real and valid thing. It does happen. Um, Demons, however, we do not believe can possess believers because we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. However, they can deeply oppress believers if that believer is walking contrary to sound doctrine. If that believer is not in fellowship with the Lord, demonic oppression can be a very strong and powerful force. So here we find a man who's unable to speak. He's been physically hindered by a demonic force so that he cannot speak. Jesus casts this demon out, and the scriptures tell us that the dumb immediately began to speak, which links the fact that it was the demon that was causing the problem. And the Bible says the people wondered, that meaning they marveled in amazement at Jesus' power over the demonic realm. And this is where things get interesting, right? Because to this point, everybody, they look at what Jesus is doing, and they glorify God. Remember how many times early in the book of Luke, and if you go to Matthew and Mark and John, Jesus does something and the people, and and the scriptures say the people wondered and glorified God that he would give man such power. The people wondered and glorified God that, that this man was among them, that this prophet was among them. Well, now the people are still wondering. But then some of them said, the scriptures tell us, He casts out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Now, when we cross-reference this accusation with similar ones made in Matthew and Mark, Mark, Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, tells us that the Pharisees made this accusation. Mark chapter 3, verse 22, tells us that the scribes made this accusation. So the religious leaders are the sum of them here. The Pharisees and the scribes, little wonder, right? Those guys are always causing these issues. So the Pharisees and the scribes are the ones making these accusations. And the primary resistance to Jesus' miracles has been through them throughout the scriptures. But this is a whole new level of resistance, isn't it? It's one thing to say, we don't believe you're Messiah. It's another thing to say, the power through which you just cast out that demon was the power of Beelzebub. Now let's talk about that name itself. Then we'll talk about the significance of their statement. Beelzebub. Actually pronounced Beelzebul in the Greek. Beelzebub is the Hebrew. Beelzebul being the name that was given to that God by the the people that created that God and by the demonic forces behind it. Beelzebub being a Hebrew twisting of it. Uh, a little bit. Beelzebul, meaning Lord of the house. Beelzebub, meaning 
Lord of the Flies. He was the ancient god of the city of Ekron in the days of the Philistines when they were strong in the land. We find him referenced in 2 Kings 1. You remember when Ahaziah, the son of the wicked king Ahab, fell from a far distance and he was hurt? And he was dying and he wanted to know whether or not he would live or die. And so he tells his people, go to Ekron and talk to the priests of Beelzebub and inquire of Beelzebub whether or not I will live or whether or not I will die. And as they're leaving, Elijah kind of pops up as he intended to do. And they're like, whoa, who is this guy? And he's dressed all in hair and camel's hair and leather and girdle. And, and he's eating you know, locusts and wild honey. And he's looking all raggedy. And Elijah says, go tell your king that because he inquired of Beelzebub, he wanted to inquire of Beelzebub instead of inquiring of the Lord of Israel, he will now die. You don't even have to go to Beelzebub. I'm going to give you the answer from the Lord. And they get back and they tell him this. And he says, who told you that? They say, well, this, this guy in this, in this camel hair, he's like, ah, I know that guy. That's Elijah. That's Elijah. He was a thorn in my dad's side too. So we, we get this story and that's what we read in second Kings uh, chapter one, beginning in verses uh, two and three. I, I've got, I don't know if that's supposed to be second Kings one or second Kings two. I've got one up here. I've got two in my notes. And uh, so you might want to write them both down and, and you can fact check me as to which one. But the scriptures say this. And Ahaziah fell down through the lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, go, look at this, go inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron, whether I shall rece- recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron? And that, that account, that historical account is very interesting. I'd encourage you to, to, to read it if you're not super familiar with it sometime. Ahaziah... Um, obviously thought that this God, Beelzebub, who was intended to be a God of healing, thought that he was powerful enough to help him know whether or not he would live or die. This indicates that the demonic power behind this false God was obviously very strong. This was a very strong God. So much so that as we look into the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees call him the chief of devils. The chief of devils. Now we do not know, nor does our text tell us one way or another, that by Beelzebub they mean Satan himself, or just one of Satan's minions. And the Bible is not clear, as I've mentioned, please make this point very clear. The Bible is not clear as to how demonic forces are divided, or how they introduce themselves to others. We do know from history that certain demonic names pop up over and over again, deceiving people in different ways under the same banner. Let me give you some examples. The god Astaroth, the false god, the demonic, the, the false god throughout the ages, the demonic force called Astaroth. She was known to the Canaanites as Astart. To the Sumerians, she was Inanna. To the Babylonians, she was Ishtar. To the Assyrians and the Akkadians, she was Ashtart, Ashtoreth, or Asherah. And Ashtoreth to the Egyptians, Isis, Ashet, or Aset. To the Phoenicians, she was known as Tenit Ashtart, or Ashtaroth. Her Ugaritic name was Anat. All of these speaking of the same demonic 
false god. In Babylon, in Phoenicia, in Egypt, it traveled, but it was the same false god. Now, in demonology circles... In demonology circles, whether you're talking about old church demonology or even the church of Satan, which you can, you can find their information online, uh, they consider there to be an evil demonic trinity between Ashtaroth, Beelzebub, and Lucifer. And these three being the three chief demons in the pantheon of demonic hosts. She's mentioned in the Bible as Ashtoreth, but we also see her as Asherah. We see her in Ezekiel. See, and in Ezekiel, Ezekiel actually sees priests worshiping Ashtoreth in the temple in his visions. Now, I tell you all of this not, not to give you a full breadth of uh, demonology here, but in order that we can introduce you to a person named George Van Tassel. George Van Tassel was the father of the modern UFO movement. In 1952, he claimed to receive a telepathic message from an interdimensional alien on the planet Venus. Wow, that's pretty far out there. This alien told him of many apocalyptic future events and led him into a New Age religion. And this alien, when this alien introduced itself to Van Tassel, introduced itself by the name Ashtar. Interesting. Today, Ashtar Command is a New Age spiritual group that is apocalyptic in nature, expecting Ashtar, who they call the commander of the host of 20 million in this universal alien network that we're unfamiliar with, but that is out there. Messages from Ashtar have called upon people to strive for universal peace so that we can join a greater consciousness. And folks... I hope it becomes apparent to you that these demonic forces who were alive all the way back to Babel, who were back there and they were worshipping them in the days of, uh, of Nimrod, who they worshipped in Egypt, who they worshipped in Phoenicia, who they, wor- who they have worshipped throughout, he's just changing forms. He's just changing approaches so that now he approaches through the guise of being an alien and presenting himself as the head of the Ashtar command and that there's coming a day when they'll remove all unbelievers and all of the things that we read about in the, in, in the book of Revelation that we call the end times, Antichrist. It's all the same message. And so they, for, they push people into New Age Spiritism to prepare themselves for this Messiah called Antichrist, who will be their God. They've changed their method of delivery, but the, the demons are still active. The demons are still active. It's, he hasn't even changed his name. Now, to this end, we would understand Beelzebub, like Ashtar, likely, uh, or at least perhaps, is not a direct reference to Satan. We don't know whether the scribes and Pharisees were just lauding them in together, used the name Beelzebub, but is referencing Satan, or whether or not they're actually referencing Beelzebub, who would be a chief demon under Satan. We don't know. But Satanists, 
as I mentioned, call him Beelzebul, meaning Lord of the House, Lord of the High House. They believe that Beelzebub is Lucifer's enforcer in unity and is the patron of the Far East, the patron of martial arts, and of Asian cultures. I'm not making that up. That's from the Satanist websites. Now, I give you this background to give you perspective. I cannot say one way or another whether the Jewish leaders accusing him, had, as I mentioned, had specifically um, thought of Beelzebub as a different entity. And we'll see as we continue through the text that it doesn't really matter. Our teaching will be the same either way. Because the kingdom of Satan is not divided. This is the, the important point as we'll get into our application. The kingdom of Satan is not divided. But as we consider this term, you need to know that there are spiritual beings that are fighting an unseen battle. And it is very, very real. We see the casualties of this battle all around us every day. The casualties of people that have been ravaged by the philosophies of sin and of Satan. The people that have been ravaged by uh, evil. The ideologies of rebellion against God and against authorities. But I hope it gives you another element of perspective as well. That we need to understand the magnitude. This is the other end of the perspective here. Understand with me, brethren, the magnitude of the accusation that's leveled against Jesus here. We say they were talking about Jesus and attributing his work to Satan. And that sounds really bad. But when we understand just how real this is, and we contemplate the tremendous power which these demonic forces wield over this earth, what we then understand is that they were calling the works of the true and living God the works of deepest evil. And associating Jesus with Satan so that we can rightly say that they're staring in the eyes of God and they're calling him Satan. They're staring in the eyes of the true and living word, the light of life, and they're calling him the depths of darkness. They're calling him the enemy of God. They're saying his works are empowered by evil. They are calling good evil and evil good. This was not just a rejection of Jesus' works. This was a violent revulsion against his identity, his power, and his intentions on this earth. This is a, a, an important point in Jesus' ministry. And this is the natural progression of rejection, whether of an individual or of a society in relation to God, is it not? At first they say, well, those actions are noble, but they're not for me, right? That's how they started with Jesus. Those actions are noble, but they're not for me. And that's how individuals start when they've rejected the gospel. Those, what you do is noble. You do good stuff, Christians. I like that you do good stuff, but it's not for me. Society. We love those Christians. They do good stuff. It's just not for me. But do you see the natural progression? Then there comes a point where they say, what you're doing is not the work of God, it's the work of evil. And next thing you know, because we discipline our children, we're child abusers. And next thing you know, because we won't accept sinful lifestyles, we're bigotous. And we're fill-in-the-blankophobic. This is the natural progression. Happened with Jesus, it will happen with us of individuals, and of society. Eventually, people react in utmost hostility, calling good evil and evil good, so seeing the good we do as evil. 
Finally, in verse 16, we find also that they tempted Jesus by seeking from him signs. Now, we're going to skip that verse this week because that's going to come up again in verses 27 through 36, which I'm going to preach next week. That's where Jesus is going to respond to their demand that he show them signs. Have you noticed a few signs in the book of Luke already? Just a few. You know, like raising the dead. Causing the blind to see, walking on water, causing fish to flow into a net, uh, casting out demons. But they're going to demand from him a sign, and he's going to respond to them. We'll talk about that next week. But let's continue. We must hasten on here. Uh, Verse 17 and 18. But he, the scriptures tell us, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a uh, a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. Jesus responds to their false accusation in the same way that we should all respond to false accusations. With more truth. Don't go down to their level. Don't fight fire with the fire of, of uh, ad hominem, which means don't, don't call them names because they're calling you names. Don't get dirty because they're dirty. Don't break the rules because they're breaking the rules. Fight these things with more truth. Jesus doesn't get defensive here. We don't need to get defensive over the truth. The truth is self-validating. It stands on its own two feet. We don't have to, uh, we don't have to, to, to violently fight against those who are perverting the truth because the truth is self-validating. Now we should defend the truth, make no mistake, but not be defensive over the truth. Let me explain the nuance. To defend the truth is to stand up for the truth, to not back down from the truth, to maintain the truth in our lives, to be a good testimony. To become defensive of the truth is to insist that others agree with us that something is the truth and to not be happy until they've agreed that what we're saying is the truth. And so we begin to fight that person. Don't do that. We don't need to go there. We should always stand for truth. But we should never allow it to degenerate into a fight against another person. Too often our arguments, whether religious, whether political, whether philosophical, become arguments against people and ideas, rather against for people and ideas. Arguments where we're stuck on what they're doing wrong instead of just arguments about telling what's right. But truth is self-validating. It needs to be stated, it needs to be lived, it needs to be defended, it needs to be explained. And if we remain consistent in the truth, then the truth will speak for itself. But the problem is, oftentimes we don't trust the truth to speak for itself. So we start to fight people, tear them down, revel in their failures, evaluate ourselves, and, and elevate ourselves above them. We seek to lower people, shame them, and embarrass them so that they'll look bad and so we'll look good, thinking that somehow that makes the truth look better. We turn people into our enemies because we don't like what they say or we don't like their ideas or we don't like their lifestyle. And in doing so, we do wrong because we yield the high ground. We, whether we win or lose the argument, truth gets lost in the mix. And truth needs to come out preeminent. And truth cannot come out preeminent on the other side if we lose truth to an argument. If we start tearing people down and we yield that high ground. Don't yield it. We cannot just win at any cost, throw out the rules, throw out the truth in order to win the argument. Stick to the truth and let the truth 
validate itself. So Jesus defends the truth with the truth. And he tells them, look, a divided kingdom cannot stand. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every house divided against itself crumbles. Then he states directly, look, if Satan is working against himself so that he's empowering me to cast out his own demons, then Satan knows his kingdom will crumble. He would not do that. He will not do that. Satan does not work against himself. He will use truth. He'll, he'll, take, he'll take one step back if it means taking two steps forward. He'll give people a little bit of truth as long as he can mix that with the errors so that they'll be worse in the latter end. But the kingdom of darkness will not operate in opposition to itself. This is one of the rules that Jesus in his teaching in Luke chapter 11 is laying out for us. The kingdom of darkness does not operate in, in opposition to itself. Jesus' works do nothing for the kingdom of Satan. Jesus came in truth. He aligned with the word of God. He did righteous works. He's casting out demons and then he's giving God the glory. He's calling men to obey the Father through his works. The fruit of his works, the fruit of his words, the fruit of his ministry are all that of righteousness in the name of the Father. There's nothing that can even be construed as being from Satan. And Jesus says, Satan is not divided. We mentioned in our foundational comments that Satan can transform into an angel of light. He can appear as righteous as anyone. He can use all the right words, but what, what no unrighteous man can do, what it is impossible for an unrighteous man to do, is bear the fruit of righteousness, right? Bear the fruit of the Spirit. A righteous, an unrighteous man cannot bear the fruit of righteousness. He can come disguised with the fruits, with the, with, with, with the show of righteousness, but when it gets down to who he is, he will bear the fruit of darkness, the fruit of the flesh. Jesus, however, bore the fruit of righteousness, and as such, to say that his fruit of righteousness was empowered by the kingdom of darkness, Jesus says, is not possible. On the other hand, he says in verses 19 and 20, he counters... And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, well, if my manifestations are empowered by Beelzebub, then every other manifestation that you've seen must be as well. Then your sons, then the prophets of old, then everyone who's cast out demons must have done it through the power, could have done it through the power of Beelzebub as well. How do you know? If you're attributing the works, the fruit of a righteous man to Satan, then there is no standard anymore. If demons can be forcibly removed through the power of the chief of demons, then everything's been turned on its head. And Jesus says there's a design, and the design is followed. The Pharisees and scribes had put themselves on a very slippery slope here. They turned the standard of truth on its head. They claimed that the righteous works were evil, and now they have no basis by which to evaluate any good or evil. Because they've thrown out the standard. They can't just apply this false standard to Jesus. They have to apply it to the prophets too, right? They have to apply it to their, their children too, to their workers of, of um, casting out demons and such. And so now everything's just gotten muddied. So he's telling them here, look, this is inconsistent. It can't work the way you're trying to make it work. On the other hand, Jesus states, let's look, think of it the other way. Jesus says, on the other hand, if everything that you've always believed about demonic 
uh, casting out demons is true and the work of righteousness so that I have uh, glorified the father. I've cast out demons in the father's name. I've healed in the father's name. I've done everything in the father's name. I've borne the fruit of righteousness. On the other hand, if I am a worker of God, then guess what? You Pharisees and scribes have rejected the hand of God. Then the kingdom has come nigh unto you and you have pushed it away. Now let's be clear about one more matter. Jesus is speaking specifically about the works of casting out demons here. He's not saying that every miracle is from God. All throughout scriptures we see the kingdom of darkness doing miracles too, don't we? Back in the days of Pharaoh, the kingdom of darkness did miracles. The Bible tells us that in the last days, the kingdom of darkness will do miracles. But Jesus makes it clear the kingdom of darkness will not work against itself. You won't see demonic forces casting out demons from people. Because a kingdom divided cannot stand. Now, as Jesus continues, he extends this thought about the kingdom of darkness and describes the role which Jesus and even the Pharisees and scribes play in it. In verses 21 and 22, he says, When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace, but when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. Jesus gives a little parable here about a strong man. And he says that this strong man has guarded his palace through the use of physical force and through arms, through weapons. He says, and when his palace is guarded and under his control and in his strength, the man is at peace. But when a stronger man comes along and comes into this strong man's palace, the strong man's weapons and his, his power are no good anymore because the, the, the man that has come is stronger. So the stronger man overcomes the strong man and the stronger man takes away his power and takes away his goods. What a strange little parable. But what Jesus is describing here is what Jesus is doing to Satan's kingdom. Satan is the strong man. He's the man that had control. So he has control over these demonically possessed people. He has control over the minds and the hearts of many uh, in Israel at the time. And as as things are, are under his control, he says there's peace. There's not a lot of disruption. But what happens when a stronger man comes and begins to overcome the strong man? That strong man now gets desperate, violent. That strong man is no longer at peace. Jesus' works and words, that is the stronger man in this little parable, who comes and overcomes the kingdom of darkness. And when the light of God through the ministry of Jesus Christ enters into the habitation of the strong man, the strong man cannot stand because Jesus is stronger. So Jesus overcomes the strong man and the strong man loses his power. Do you see the natural extension of what Jesus is saying? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Satan cannot work against himself. What Jesus is doing is he is tearing down the power of the strong man, right? He is tearing down the stronghold, the, the, the power that the strong man has over the people of Israel. So he says, if I'm tearing down the power of the strong man, then why are you telling me I'm coming in the power of the strong man? It doesn't make sense. No strong man is going to tell one of his servants, hey, I want you to go rob me tonight. And then I want you to tear down my walls so that I'm insecure. And then I want you to kill all my other guards. 
No strong man's going to do that. The strong man wants power, and then he wants peace with his power. Jesus says, but I'm coming and I'm exercising power over the demonic forces. I'm exercising power over the darkness. I'm a stronger man that's coming to destroy the works of the strong man, to destroy the peace and the stronghold and the power that the strong man has over others. He's overcoming the strong man. And then he concludes with this point in verse 23. He says, he that is not with me is against me and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. There are only two types of people in this world, those that are with Christ and those who are not. Now, as I say this, and we'll make this more clear in our application, no one other than Christ has ever represented him perfectly, right? No one can say that every action that I do or every action you do is perfectly in line with Christ. We're trying to become that. We're seeking perfection. But none of us is perfect. So I'm not saying that that you are, uh, uh, that you're you're either perfect or or you're, you're, not with Christ, right? Salvation is by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. You believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved and you are in Christ. And then you go through the process of sanctification and that's a, a an ugly process, right? Um, it's a process of ups and downs and difficulties and trials and failures and sin and repentance and all of those things. But... There are two choices. We are either with Christ or we are against Him. You may gather men, but if you aren't gathering them to truth, then you're scattering them from God. You may say you believe truth. You may teach many nice and good things, but if you aren't leading them into the power of the stronger man and out of the power of the strong man, then you're keeping them under the power of the strong man, under the kingdom of darkness. Let this always be a standard by which we judge ministries, ministers, and teachers. Let this always be the standard. Are they leading people unto the truths of Christ, or are they leading people away from the truths of Christ? Now, no minister is perfect either. I say things from this pulpit. I've had to apologize from this pulpit before. I've had to correct myself from this pulpit before. I've said other things, I'm sure, that you've walked away saying, Pastor doesn't know it, but he is way wrong on that one. And by the way, if that's ever the case, please tell me so I can get it right. But at the same time, there's a difference between a man not always being right, a man sometimes missing the mark of truth, and a man that's leading away from truth, isn't there? There's a difference there. We may disagree on methods, we may disagree on thoughts, we may disagree on ideas, but no one who is with Jesus works against the truth. And no one who is against Jesus is on the side of truth. Now, Jesus gives one more parable as he continues. And we'll finish with this parable in our exposition tonight. This final parable speaks directly to the danger of rejecting Christ while still trying to work for God. There are many in this world who teach God's morality, even from this book. But they teach it apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. They try to teach the morality of God while ignoring the power of God through the gospel. Whether it be some religion or whether it be the humanistic ideals of morals and decency without God at all. They take morality, they borrow morality from God, but they deny the person of God at least in Jesus Christ. They want the effects of the moral standard without the accountability and the truth of the standard bearer. 
So they attempt to cast out the evil, but they don't replace it with truth. They attempt to get rid of the evil through morality, through doing good things by a standard that they don't even necessarily always acknowledge. But they don't, they haven't come to the light of the truth of, of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And Jesus speaks to this by way of warning. He says this in verses 24 to 26. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Jesus gives this little parable of a moralizer, and he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees here. He's speaking to a man that has an unclean spirit within him. And he, for one way or another, he disciplines himself or whatever it might be, and that unclean spirit, some besetting sin, whatever we want to call it, leaves that man. And since that, that unclean spirit is gone... But he's not actually invited the light of, uh, of the truth of the gospel into his heart. This unclean spirit is gone and that man cleans himself up morally, right? He, he sweeps and he moves furniture and he gets everything all clean in his life and he's looking good and, and he's moral now and he's doing all of these moral things and he's helping little old ladies across the street and he's giving to charities and he's uh, not doing things and he's doing other things and he's doing all of this moral stuff. And the Bible says that this unclean spirit wanders around and he finds no place of rest. So he says, I'm going to return to whence I came. And he comes and he finds it swept and cleaned. And he says, wow, I didn't even know this place had so much room. Look at all this room. I'm going to invite seven more spirits to come and be a part of this party. And the state of the man was worse at the end than at the first. Now... That word seven, of course, in the scriptures is the number of perfection. We don't know here uh, what exactly Jesus is saying by it, but the idea is he invites many more spirits, uh, 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 unclean spirits, to join him. To this, Jesus warns the Pharisees and Sadducees, who thought that they could have the morality of God while rejecting the authority of God in Jesus... They want to be free from the power of the strong man, but not submit themselves to the authority of the stronger man. If I may put it this way, they're resisting the power of the kingdom of darkness over them, but they don't turn to the power of the kingdom of light. And in these cases, Jesus says, the kingdom of darkness returns with a vengeance. And there's no capacity to resist it. And the end of that man is worse than the first. May I give you the example that Jesus is warning them of? The scribes and the Pharisees are moralizers. And Jesus comes and he does these great works and they say, well, he's a great prophet, but that's about it. And so now they're accepting him as a great prophet. And they're continuing to just sweep up their own lives, rejecting the light of the truth of the gospel, and they're sweeping up their own lives. And then when this indignation against the gospel comes back into them, now it's, he's casting out demons by the chief of demons. It returned more violent than before, with a, a greater resistance than before to the truth of God's word. And this is the warning. Now, we'll talk about that more in a few moments. Let's apply. We've got a lot to apply, and uh, we're, we're, the clock is ticking. The kingdom of Satan, point number one. The kingdom of Satan is unified in its purpose. 
the kingdom of Satan. We've made it quite clear that we don't know a whole lot about the nature of the spirit realm. But if Jesus' teachings in Luke 11 do clarify anything, it is this, that Satan and the demons are united in their purpose to oppose God. They are organized and they're working together against the truth. They do not fight each other and oppose each other. They are working together against the truth. One of the things that has never ceased to amaze me about evil in this world is how forward thinking it is. Take our own country for example. The overthrow of Western Judeo-Christian values in the West has been a slow and deliberate effort by wicked men going all the way back to the mid-1800s. And we can probably trace it back further still. But really, that's when we see a great deal of this begin. We, we can talk about the influence of John Dewey strategically placing into higher education people who wanted to tear down the fabric of Judeo-Christian Western values, putting them in the highest levels of education to teach the next generation of teachers how to tear down Judeo-Christian values. We could talk about the influence of Alice Bailey, who wrote about the ideals of collectivism and groupthink in the early 1900s. Everything that's happening today, as far as the, the collectivism and groupthink that, that's being pushed, she was writing about it in the early 1900s. By the way, she was writing about it under the influence of a demonic spirit called the Tibetan, who would speak to her and she would transcribe it. She admits this openly. Do some research on the League of Nations, the United Nations on Sustainable Development. See how for the last 100 years, powers in the Western world have been carefully and slowly developing an environment that we have today of ignorant, angry, and immoral people just itching to have their freedom stripped from them. And when freedom is removed, the first thing that suffers, of course, is the ability to speak the gospel, right? Can you see the plan enacted by demonic influence in the lives of hundreds of wicked individuals over multiple generations all converge toward a single goal? Make no mistake, the enemy is organized. It's united in its purpose and it's working toward one end. This is why the message is the same no matter what area of the kingdom of darkness you research. We spoke of the Ashtar command, which is working toward the goal of the collectivist one world that would cast off the shackles of religion and of morality and would evolve into a new consciousness, right? That's the Ashtar command. That's this UFO crazy, crazy thing. It's the same goals as New Age humanism. It's the same goals as ecumenical pseudo-Christianity. It's the same goals as universal education. It's the same goals as eugenics. It's the same goals of New Age radical feminism. Look at pop, modern pop music, you'll find the goals there. Look at modern Hollywood production, you'll find the goals there. Look at modern video game production, you'll find the goals there. And as you do the research, you'll find that all of these world systems and ideas converge. And they converge at the point that the Bible speaks about the society of Antichrist. Pastor, you're getting into conspiratorial territory. That's fine. You can call me whatever you want. Do the research. It all converges. Make no mistake, the kingdom of Satan is busy. He has been busy, but also make no mistake of this, that no matter which field you study, you'll find this convergence because the kingdom of Satan is unified. We should expect it to be so. 
First Timothy four, second Timothy three, Jude all warn us about the conditions of the last days. Rebellion abounds as Satan continues this slow process of turning the whole world against the truth of God, leading mankind back to the conditions found at the Tower of Babel, where the world unites itself in defiance against God, where they are all one and they say, we will make ourselves a tower unto heaven. But take note of two important reminders as I give you this very kind of depressing, pessimistic point. First, remember Jesus' words about the strong man and the fact that Jesus is the stronger man. We've seen several times in history points where the Spirit of God moved upon the hearts of men, truth was heard, and all of Satan's progress is immediately torn down through revival. We saw it at the Reformation. We saw it in the Great Awakenings. Where all of the progress that had been attempted to be made toward this system, this evil system, is torn down in a matter of a generation by revival. And it can happen again. Read about Pentecost. Read about the Reformation. Read about the Great Awakenings. Each time, society was getting very close to descending into this place of hopeless evil when the light of God shined into the world and the Holy Spirit of God moved among the people and there was a great awakening. And truth tore down error. Second, remember that you already know the ending. Right? You've already read it. Satan will be successful in unifying the world under a totalitarian ruler, under a system of tyranny. Satan will be successful in his goal of convincing mankind to rebel against Creator God. But then Creator God will come riding on a white horse with a vesture dipped in blood whose name on it is faithful and true with a sword in his hand. And he will defeat his enemies. And he will be victorious, and we will be there too, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But let us heed the warning, let us take to heart that our enemy is clever, he's deliberate, and he's unified in purpose. And I just want to give a quick side note here, though I really don't have time for it. The Bible says, Jesus says here, A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, a house divided against itself will fall. We live in a divided nation right now, don't we? A deeply divided nation. We live in a country where of people who literally hate each other because they differ in their viewpoints. We don't make friends with people who disagree with us. We're a culture that wishes harm upon those who disagree with us, rejoice in the harm of others. We talked about the assassination attempt on Congressman Scalise this week, as well as many others. And if you had read any of the reaction on social media, there were people rejoicing over him being near on his fighting for his life. To what point does a nation have to get to where over political differences, people rejoice in the death of others? To what point must our nation have descended unto? This divided nation, take note, cannot stand. The United States of America will unite or it will dissolve in its current form. It cannot remain the way it is. Western civilization is on the same area. Not just the United States, but all of Western civilization. And it will either unite or it will collapse. Take note. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Let me bring it close to home. Families. A house divided against itself will fall. Parents. Don't allow your household to become a household divided. 
between mom and dad. He wants one thing, she wants another. We argue over it. We have different ideals. The kids don't know what to believe. The kids don't know who to listen to because you're divided. Now, I'm not saying that it will end in divorce intrinsically, but what I'm saying is this. A divided household cannot be a spiritually united household. And if your household is not spiritually united, your kids, at the very least, your children will operate in conflict. And if your children are operating in conflict, then you're rolling the dice as to whether they will want to serve the Lord or not. Because you are leading them into frustration. Don't send mixed messages to your children about the beliefs and standards of mom and dad. Don't make the home a place of tension where mom's thoughts are constantly at tension with dad's thoughts. When this happens, while your family might not physically collapse, in the sense, like I said, of divorce, it will cause a tension that will bear itself out in the future decisions of your children. If your children do not see a united front, they will live in internal conflict which could cause them to walk away from Christ. Have a united home. I must move on. Point number two. First, the kingdom of Satan is united in its purposes. By the way, if you don't have a united home, get it united. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Get it right. Number two. The strong man has no power over the stronger man. I hope that this point has become very clear. Satan is the strong man. He is the roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. He is a true enemy. He is a true foe. He has tremendous power. He's not to be trifled with. So much so that the Bible says that even Michael the archangel, when he was contending with the body of Moses, did not personally rebuke Say, uh, rebuke Satan himself. In Jude chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 we read, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, Rather, the Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of the things they know not. But what they know naturally is brute beasts and those things they corrupt themselves. Again, Judah's warning against false teachers, those that would rail against demonic forces and say, we're going we're gonna to claim power over these demonic forces. I rebuke you, demonic forces, in the name of the Lord. Not even Michael the archangel rebuked a demonic force. Don't do it yourself. Those that are, are in error. Michael wouldn't even do it. The archangel of God. But... That being said, what we see plainly is that Michael did invoke the power of the Lord to rebuke Satan. Because the Lord is the stronger man still. For all of Satan's power and influence over the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Christ is stronger still. Jesus told Peter, Matthew chapter 16 verse 18, I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. In Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11, the Bible tells us that everything in heaven and on earth will bow before the name of Jesus Christ one day, and that includes the satanic, demonic hosts. Let us never forget this. Respect Satan, but understand that you serve the stronger man who has come to spoil the strong man. Point number three. 
Weakening the strong man incites the anger of his followers. Weakening the strong man incites the anger of his followers. When the kingdom of darkness is threatened, never be surprised that it angers those who live in darkness. Jesus said in John 3, 19 and 20, this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. When darkness meets light, light overcomes darkness, and darkness responds with revulsion. Darkness doesn't like to have light encroach upon it. Now the minds of those in darkness, the Bible says, are blinded to the truth. They are lost in darkness. They are in desperate need of the light. They are our mission field. They are the ones that we are called to reach. They are our purpose for, for being here. But they often make themselves our enemies. Because their way of life, their way of thinking is challenged by righteousness and the truth of the gospel. For many, it is an attack upon the very fabric of how they live their lives. When you live righteously, when you won't lie, when you won't steal, when you won't cheat with them, it, it, it feels like an attack on them because you're attacking the fabric of their, the essence of their life. And they don't take such attacks lying down. So know that. Know that the world will dislike the, the righteousness that is in you. Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen to 20, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, that the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me... They will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Those that listen to you aren't actually listening to you when you share the gospel. They're listening to Christ. Those that hate you when you share the gospel don't actually hate you. They hate Christ. This is the essence of the unbelieving world. One final point, and then we're finished. Still a lot of info here. It deals with something called the replacement principle. Those who resist the strong man but do not replace the strong man will fall deeper into his chains. I'm going to paraphrase this final point, though it is important. Jesus makes this distinction. He says, when the unclean spirit leaves a man and that man cleans up his life, but he doesn't replace that, that with the, the, but, but there's nothing to replace it. He just empties it of, of the negative. When that unclean spirit comes, he finds the place swept, he finds it open, and he brings more spirits that, that, like himself, and the, the state of that man is worse off than before. There are times in our lives where we say, okay, I need to stop doing something and I'm going to give it up. I'm going to get rid of something. I'm going to get rid of that, that thing that, that does not commend itself unto virtue. I'm going to get, I'm going to stop watching those things or listening to that stuff or I'm going to stop, uh, um, going to those places or saying those words or whatever it might be. I'm going to stop because it's wrong. And so you stop, but you don't replace it with anything. Have you ever found that you end up kind of working your way right back into it? That it's like you stop. Doing something, you stop a habit, you stop a routine, and, and you're doing okay, and then you just find, kind of find your way back there, and sometimes you even find yourself in a deeper place than you were originally. This is the idea, that if we get rid of something negative, but we don't replace it with a virtue, 
then that negative element can find its way back into our lives. I'm at the jail when I when I counsel the folks at the jail. I'm giving them this principle all the time. And I want to give you a passage of scripture. It's a bit long, but I want to give it to you this evening. That is the the, the best passage of scripture to help us with this idea. Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse seventeen. The Bible says this. Paul writing this. I excuse me. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. That ye henceforth not walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their minds, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. He says, you're not one of these anymore. Walking in darkness. So he says, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And then he gives examples. He says, and I'm going to paraphrase this now, put away lying and put on the truth. Speak truth with your neighbor. Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but rather edify. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, mal, uh, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And instead, put on kindness. Be kind one to another. Do you see the principle? Paul doesn't just say stop lying. He says, don't just stop lying. Start telling the truth. He says, put off uh, stealing, but don't just stop stealing And then keep it for yourself. Start giving. Replace it with the positive virtue. Stop the corrupt communication. But don't just stop corrupt communication. Start edifying. Make sure everything that comes out of your mouth builds people up. Put off anger and bitterness, etc. And replace it with kindness and forgiveness. It's not enough just to get rid of the negative virtue. Replace it. With or the negative element, replace it with positive virtue. Go the other direction. Fill the void so that you can't and won't fall back into the problem. That's the replacement principle. I had to go through it quickly, but it is essential to spiritual victory in your lives. If you're trying to get rid of a besetting sin, and the sin is a time issue, or the sin is a, a is it's, it's it's an issue with your eyes, or it's an issue with your ears, or it's an issue with your mouth. Don't just stop the wrong. Pick up something, replace it with something right. Don't just stop wasting your time. We talked this morning about wasting the time. Don't just stop wasting your time. Replace it with redeeming the time in some way. Fill that void. Fill that void. Put on virtue where sin once was. Put on serving others where you once served yourself. Put on love where you once had hate. This evening in many ways was a tipping point. As what we read this evening was a tipping point in Jesus' ministry. The leaders of Israel were no longer just opposed to the ministry of Jesus. They were attributing his ministry to Satan. Jesus uses this occasion to teach about the character of Satan's kingdom. To show them without question that he was not 
in fact, a worker of Satan, but rather the messenger of the true and living God. And from it, we have learned these important elements, that the kingdom of Satan is unified in his purpose, that the strong man has no power over the stronger man, that weakening the strong man incites the anger of his followers, and then finally, that those who resist the strong man but do not replace his power will fall deeper into his chains. I don't know what the Holy Spirit did in your heart this evening as I preached these words, and many words they were, but may I encourage you, If you're dealing with one of these elements, if you had disrespected the power of the kingdom of darkness, if you had not understood its unity, if 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 your family is not unified, as we talked about, if uh, you have felt like Satan has a power over you and you have not seen that 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 you serve the stronger man. If uh, you have wondered about exciting the anger and, and, and you feel as though you're doing something wrong because people resist you when you try to do right and you realize tonight that when you do right, when Satan begins to lose his stronghold, you can expect resistance. And then finally, if you've been trying to, to overcome a sin simply by cutting it out but not replacing it with some virtue. If any of those things tonight have have touched your heart through the Holy Spirit, may I encourage you to get it taken care of, to deal with it, to become better for it, and to allow the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God as we've given it this evening to renew your mind. Let's close in prayer.